Money starts right now. Live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Brian Kelly, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, it's the Smart Money Showcase as our coverage of one of the biggest investor conference continues. Larry Robbins of Glenview Capital will be joining us from the Sone Conference. And you want to listen to him. He had one of the best performing picks from last year. Plus, John Pfeffer on why the hedge fund world will become more bullish on the crypto universe. But first, we start off with a big after-hour story, and that would be Alphabet. You know it is Google's parent company reporting earnings moments ago. The stock has been volatile after earnings um, after that big beat. The conference call is going on as we speak. We'll have full coverage of the latest headlines coming from the C-suite. Um, and it wouldn't be earnings season without him. Fast Money friend Gene Munster is manning the red phone in-house. Listening on that call, we will check with him in just a few moments. We begin, though, with the action in Alphabet. That stock crushing earnings expectations. Failing to hold the rally, though. So is the bar simply too high for some of these big tech earnings uh, this season? Guy. The bar is definitely too high. But this quarter, look, I look at this quarter, it's fine. I think if you're bullish, you take some solace in the fact that it wasn't a disaster. It could have been. There doesn't seem to be any headlines coming out that would give you concern. BK has brought up a point, which is probably the only bear case to me in Google right now. Do they go by the way of Facebook? Do the problems that Facebook is facing, does Google have the same problems? I think the answer is probably yes, although we haven't heard that. I'll say this, the stock, and I'm not one for round numbers, but it held $1,000 in February. It held $1,000 a few weeks ago. Trades at 22 times forward earnings, and you probably have close to 19% earnings growth. So valuation-wise, off this quarter, I think it's a pretty compelling story. Your shareholder, yes. what do you think? I don't know exactly what to make, but I mean, some positives and some negatives here. I really want to hear the commentary. One thing that's perennially disappointing to me is the lack of some, doing something with that cash hoard that is just one of the world's largest ever. And I, it's ridiculous to me they don't do anything to it. I understand if they don't want to get into a situation of having to pay a quarterly dividend, that's fine. Then just pay a big one-time special dividend. Microsoft did it years ago. You're not locking yourself in anything. That's my single biggest complaint here. I haven't seen the, the nuances yet. I'd love to get a little more granularity on some of those other businesses. So I think the bar is actually kind of low coming in here. I don't think or Google specifically. I don't, yeah, I don't think the bar's high. I mean, I think they had some margin pressures in the fourth quarter. People kind of know what their core business is. We still need a lot more transparency out of YouTube and even uh, their cloud platform, GCP, which is growing 34%. will probably grow about that much next year. So if you think about the story, you know, Guy pointed out where the multiple is relative to the growth. Google's absolutely fine. In fact, Xcash, it's about 18 times. And so I don't think people expect a lot. I think they're getting painted with a Facebook brush. I think they have better data than Facebook. And I think more people have to use Google than use Facebook. So I think they're in a different place, even though we all know that these guys are under some regulatory um, headwinds. And, and, and again, if you want to get, you know, big government all over the tech sector, they, Google seems to be the place, um, obviously, Follow Europe, by the way. Just to be clear, yeah. I mean, the European Commission has been a leader in this. I'm not saying it's leader good. I'm saying it's leader. And it's going to happen here. Follow what happened in Europe. Yeah, I, I think what you're seeing in the after hours is just fisticuffs over whether or not you believe that CapEx or spending uh, is going to lead to higher growth in the future or, or not, right? So we had this great revenue beat, everything looked good, then all of a sudden the margins came out and they were the lowest since 2012. So then the stock sold off. So that's the fight right Those now. Fisticuffs? And we'll fisticuff a kerfuffle, if you will. <laughs> wow. yeah, that's what's happening Careful. in after hours. I think we'll know by 9.30 tomorrow morning who won. You look like you're about to play. Do you yeah. have that, that wow. game well, I'm just, playing? No, no, no. I'm face. just wondering. Do you, do you think that it's that there are concerns about potential regulation that are that's sort of 
keeping Alphabet within keeping a, a certain trading range. Exactly. A little cautious because of that, that overhang. It wouldn't make sense. I mean, I mean, you mentioned Europe, right? GDPR goes into effect next month. We're right. going to really get a glimpse as to how that's going no to impact question, business. Europe's not sure if they're going to talk about it on this on call. Off. One would hope they would, but we don't know if we're going to get right. clarity on Right, I agree with this. Costs. So is, it, is that regulation concerned keeping buyers at bay? The answer is yes. But the flip side of that is the point Tim just made. You know, 22 times forward earnings, 18 times ex-cash. I mean, that becomes a compelling story on a valuation basis. And you're talking about a company that, quite frankly, doesn't have that many rivals. So does valuation outweigh the concerns of regulation? I would say yes, by the way. I guess the question is, is that does that valuation reflect a privacy concern discount embedded in the shares already? I, or is that would that be on top of the valuation discount it's getting right now, for whatever reason, maybe because the cash position is too big? I think that it does already reflect some headwinds there. I mean, this has been in the works for several months, so it's just starting soon, but it's been in the works for quite a while. I mean, to me, to find a business like this at 18 times the cash flow generation here, and this is 18 times including all that money they spend, right? So it's an extraordinarily powerful money machine. I'm, I'm, you know, a little disappointed it's not trading better, but absolutely not a seller here but, at but all. But it always has, and I'll say this in Google's defense, at least relative to the content. You want to get all worried about it? Look, Facebook's cheap too, right? So you can make an argument, oh boy, what's happening to both of these stocks? But Google's always been cheap, and Google's been cheap for transparency reasons, not because they're necessarily doing something bad, but we need to better understand their business. And, and I think also they're going to they're gonna build five new data centers this year. That's going to weigh out. The HTC transaction shows they're not afraid to go out and buy some hardware. Maybe you're worried about another bad, I don't know if it was a bad or a good one, but people are worried about also maybe an M&A, you know, Okay, it's been cheap for a long time, but the stock's done well. Other than the last two months, if you've held this stock for years as it's been cheap, 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 but earning its way into higher and higher prices, that's, you know, I'd rather it not be cheap, but yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to own it. I think you hold it. Um, any read through to Facebook, or is Facebook such a unique animal at this point in the story? Yeah, I, I think, well, listen, my view on peak centralization is a longer-term type of observation, right? That all that we're having this, this underlying decentralized Internet that is going to come up and start to erode the market gap. That's not really a trading view, though, right? I can't trade off of that today except for being the decentralized Internet stocks. But in, in terms of, you know, is this different than Google versus Facebook? I think Facebook's the tip of the spear here that, you know, as Gunlock said today, if they have one more issue. I think that's going to be more of a problem for Facebook than it would be for Google. So if you had to buy the two, then I'd go more with uh, Google. Jeffrey Gunlock of, of Double Line, who said to short Facebook today at the Zone conference. The, the quickly, the read through to me is the Facebook quarter, I think, will be fine. That's never really been in question. It's what is their guidance going to be and what is the commentary going to be after the last you know week and a half, two weeks that they've been through basically the ringer. I submit that I don't think they can be all that they shouldn't be giddy, let's put it that way, in terms of just the optics would be bad, which is why I still think there's some downside. You know what I'm holding here? This is a gummy it's snake. A twin snake. I, I don't know if anyone can see this, but this is a gummy snake. One side of it's sweet, mm. one side of it's tart. tart or sour. Where are you going and, with it? And I think this is a perfect metaphor for what's going on with Facebook and Google. I mean, nice. these, guys, these guys are major, major targets because these guys are dominating. They are certainly a successful model. And Wait, I, so it, which one is sweet and which one is sour? Well, you want me to eat this now? I don't, wouldn't be fair to anybody for me to do that because it won't go well. The but the metaphor is what? Well, what's, sweet, what's, sweet, look, what's sweet is the fact that these guys have these enormous platforms, first mover advantage, no one can touch okay. them. What's sour is the same thing. Oh, so both are the snake. 
Oh. Absolutely. Oh, okay. All right. All right. I, was actually, I thought one was one side of the snake and one was the other. Okay. Well, I'm glad you brought your snake along for Can I just say one thing, though, on yes. Facebook? I don't agree that if one more thing comes out, I think they are setting us up for more bad things coming out. When they tell us they're reviewing every application, every every partnership they've had. Oh, there's bound to be something else. There's bound to be something else. They know that. They're telling us that. Yeah. Well, it wouldn't be tech earnings without Fast Money friend Gene Munster of Loop Venture. So let's bring in Gene for more on Alphabet. Gene, what'd you make of the quarter? Why do you think the stock is just, a, you know, eh, flat after hours? Well, there wasn't a lot of surprises, Melissa, but I just want to put something in perspective. Is The world cannot live without Google. We can live without Facebook, but Google is part of the fabric, the oxygen of the Internet. And as evidence of that, look at the top line growth, 23%, the same top line growth that we saw over the past six quarters. And Typically, companies, when they continue to grow, the growth rates decline. So they're so-called beating the law of large numbers. But I'm sure, as you've been talking about, I've been diligently listening to the call here. But the privacy is a big topic. So far, we're almost 40 minutes into the call. They really haven't addressed that privacy question. If you're at home with a computer, you may want to just try to search for this term is download my Google data. Bring that uh, heavy 5 gig file down and see all the data that Google has on you. It may think different about kind of how this plays out over the near term, but don't want to mistake into this here as Google is part of the auction of the Internet and is going to be a successful company over the long haul. So in terms of the tone of the privacy questions, Gene, or the tone of the privacy conversation, what is it? Are they, are they talking about the cost for implementing GDPR? Are they talking about increased regulation here in the United States? I mean, what seems to be the key themes? Well, they really steered largely away from that in the prepared remarks. We're about two questions into the Q&A right now. The first question was more about Waymo. So uh, right now, Melissa, you'll have to report back later on in the show here, but they really haven't said much about privacy. In your view, Gene, we're talking about the discount in terms of valuation, how this stock is, is cheap in terms of how it trades. Is there a, a privacy concern discount embedded in the shares already, or would that be a, another discount to valuation to be made in the future? I think there's a small, if I was going to put a guess on it, less than 5% privacy discount already baked in there. The Wall Street Journal today did a story just in terms of the amount of data that they have on you. I think most investors are bracing for what potentially could come down. So I don't think that that would be a total surprise. But if there was something that they would have to come out, and I don't anticipate this, but come out and say that it needs to impact their monetization about changes in privacy, that obviously is not priced in. Your number one question right now Number, number one question is, how do they think about all this Facebook, uh, what Facebook has been through, and what are the probabilities of some sort of oversight from the government that could impact the type of data they capture? Remember, Google is a data company, and so that's my number one question. All right, Gene, we'll check back with you a little bit later on. Gene Munster of Loop, who's manning the red phone for us and monitoring the conference call. That was... Not surprising, but it was very interesting. The privacy is so gotcha. at the forefront. Uh, you know, we're about half an hour, 40 minutes into the conference call, and it, well, it it's kicked private. off. I mean, that makes sense. <laughs> nice Leave it to the end. All right. Now, well, I, I think you, you have a place here where what's really interesting is we're not even talking about their core business, you know, which, which should be really, if this doesn't grow at 20%, I mean, I, I think if we don't get guidance that it continues to be solid, I think the stock's got more problems than people are giving. I don't think that's going to happen. But, I mean, let's get back to their core business for a second. And, and, you know, really, this is a business that continues to chug along and be the core of why you want to own this thing and, and why you're getting 16 to 18% CAGR over the next four years. Right. Well, obviously, regulation is a big issue here. Take a listen to what Jeff Gunlock of Double Line Capital said earlier at the Sony conference about what regulation would mean for Facebook and CEO Mark Zuckerberg.
I saw the uh, congressional testimony, which I thought was terrible. I thought it was dismissive. I thought it was insincere. By thought, Zuckerberg? Yeah. I, I thought that uh, he was uh, very semantic in the way he was answering questions as opposed to fulsome. And when the charts I used on stage today, once the regulators show up, they tend to cause problems. There's basically two modes of regulation by Congress, none and overreaching. Again, his recommendation was to short Facebook. So what do you make of that? I mean, the other thing that he said was that regulation could end equity bubbles in reference to Facebook. Right, right. And so if you look at what have been the leaders, it's been the fang stocks, right? We talk about them all the time. So if regulation does come in and they have to change their business model substantially, then yes, could that could that pop the bubble if we're even in a bubble? I can't, I don't think we're in a bubble. I mean, yes, you know, earnings and P.E. ratios are somewhat high, but they weren't as high as they were a couple weeks ago, and they're not egregiously high. Um, so watch out for regulation. I think, you know, his trade also was also go, go long oil as well. So I think it was yeah. more of a pairs trade than just a, a complete short Facebook. Quick, the other side of that coin quickly, and you brought this up, Mel, regulation hurts the little guys and gals more than it hurts the big guys and gals. Obviously, Facebook is one of the bigger ones. So we'll see. If they do come with regulation, maybe Facebook could actually win to that. I'm not saying they will, but that's the other side of that argument. Coming up, we will have full coverage of the Alphabet earnings call as it continues. And Gene Munster is going to stick around to give us instant reaction to all the biggest headlines as they break. Plus, so-called safety stocks are tumbling. It could be signaling a major warning sign for the market. The chart master will be here to explain. And it's the Smart Money Showcase. Investing legend Larry Robbins of Glenview Capital will be here fresh off his new idea. He just presented at the Sone conference moments ago. It's a rare and exclusive interview. And John Pfeffer will explain why the hedge fund world has gone crazy for crypto. You're watching Fast Money Live from Times Square in New York City. Much more fast right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Today marks the 23rd annual Irish Sone Conference, where some of Wall Street's brightest minds share their best investment ideas. Our own David Faber is there now with hedge fund legend Larry Robbins. David, take it away. All right. Thank you very much, uh, Melissa. I am joined by Larry Robbins, of course, of Glenview, uh, who just presented here at the Sone Conference. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. They called you a legend. I'm not so sure about uh, that. Definitely but... downgraded from legend recently. Yeah. So um, thank you. you spent your uh, presentation on Amazon and the supposed threats that don't really exist in terms Correct. of actually distributing drugs or being a seller of drugs. Why don't you believe Amazon will move into a business dominated by the likes of the drug distributors such as McKesson or Cardinal uh, sure. and others? Sure. Well, I mean, specifically, we were doing a presentation positive on McKesson and on Express Scripts and on CVS, but the overarching cloud that hangs over the entire industry in pharmaceutical supply is the whiz that, will they or won't they and when will they and what, how will they, will Amazon enter that business? And uh, uh, we believe that the, uh, Amazon is obviously the most respected company in the world. Uh, they uh, have uh, an unlimited patience. They have a very long-term horizon, and they've been highly successful in everything they're doing. So we think the market is being rational in terms of respecting and fearing Amazon's entry into different industries. But in this case, we think that the barriers to entry are quite high. Let's take pharmaceutical distribution, McKesson, Amerisource, and Cardinal. UPS looked at getting into this exact same business in 2006, but you need separate custody, pick, pack, and ship facilities around the United States. You can't commingle opioids or narcotics with other general merchandise goods. You need cold storage through the entire chain. Plus, you need to connect all the suppliers with all the customers, but the customers aren't necessarily Amazon's consumers. The customers are the places where pharmacy actually happens. And unlike 
many businesses which Amazon has appropriately automated, uh, there's always going to be a human pharmacist that has a role both regulatorily as well as consumer preference because we're dealing with life-saving medical issues. So you don't believe that they will even consider it over time? Are there other reasons beyond the simple fact that it's a very difficult business to get into? That hasn't stopped them in the past. Well, I think, uh, first of all, I do think they will consider it, and they may, they may try to enter in, in, in some form, right? We, we, of course, respect the fact that the three of the most respected companies in the U.S. and the world, right, Amazon together with J.P. Morgan and Berkshire, have decided to contribute their collective intellectual capital and financial capital in order to try to solve the issues of rising U.S. health care costs. But rising U.S. health care costs are because, of, uh, because we're a demographically aging nation and because we're a compassionate nation and we spend a lot in end-of-life care. And I don't think that uh, either those three companies or any of us are going to uh, change those facts and circumstances. Uh, it is important to realize that the out-of-pocket cost for pharmaceuticals has actually decreased by 15% over the last four years, according to IQVIA. Uh, the, uh, uh, and in fact, the overall price, net of generics, net of specialty inflation, et cetera, the overall price even for all payers, not just consumer out-of-pocket, has also similarly deflated. So we've seen these horrific headlines of this usurious pricing in generic pills. We know that in uh, life-saving uh, medicines that they are quite expensive and they cause significant angst on families in emergency situations. But the average pharmaceutical inflation is actually much more under control today than in the 90s when it averaged And that is why? Uh, that is because of the intervention of companies like Managed Care and the PBMs, who've created these uh, competitive formats such that two branded drugs uh, will be deemed equivalent by a medical panel and all of a sudden whoever distributes at the lowest price wins, as well as uh, uh, bringing down the cost to fill by Walgreens, CVS and others, introducing 90-day uh, fill prescriptions, introducing mail order and other things. If there's two government programs where the government pays for drugs, Medicare Part B, where the PBMs don't participate in, and Medicare Part D, where they do. In Part D, six years after it was introduced, drug prices were 20% lower than the government projected. In the case of Part B, they were not lower, right? We think the reason is simple. When you have a for-profit middleman, and we know the market doesn't like middlemen, but Amazon's a pretty good middleman. When you have a for-profit middleman whose incentive and passion is reducing costs and increasing compliance and quality, they tend to be quite effective at it. And the PBM industry, we think, has actually added a lot of value uh, to payers and to consumers. Um, I may circle back to a couple of thoughts more on Amazon, but I want to get to some other names in your portfolio, Larry because you've been involved in all of them and, and each of them in their own way also have news going on. Let's just stay in this. First of all, Express Scripts getting bought by Cigna. Sure. Are you supportive of that deal? Uh, we are supportive of that deal. That deal spread trades at a 23% gross spread. I think the companies think that it will close by the end of the year. The major hurdles to the deal are a shareholder vote by both sides as well as uh, government approval. Uh, even though it has nothing to do with the AT&T Time Warner deal, the arbitrage community is watching that deal as a benchmark for vertical integration. CBS so, Aten is another one that's been caught up in the same argument. Exactly right. And so to the extent that the government uh, fails in its quest to block those deals, I think you can see the spreads somewhat compressed. But by the end of the year, there'll either be a yes or a no. Uh, while uh, many people were surprised by Cigna's acquisition, we did not own Express before the deal, we do understand, respect, and buy into the concept that if you have scale on the managed care side and scale at the pharmaceutical benefit management side, that through better data analytics, you can actually lower the per member per month cost, we think by $20 
dollars or five percent per member per month. And since Cigna is mostly an ASO business, uh, that'll mostly get passed on to customers. So this merger will actually be uh, pro-competitive and pro-customer, which we think uh, will cause. An, and an you easy believe deal in the strategic them. logic of the deal itself? Uh, we we do certainly. We were supportive if the major five HMOs could consolidate horizontally to three. We thought that could also deliver significant sale, uh, much to the chagrin of things like hospitals, which we also owned, who would have seen lower reimbursement through consolidated purchasing. Given the fact that the government established that those five players are likely surviving five players, the, the next wave of uh, uh, reducing costs for, or, and increasing quality has to be through vertical in, in, integration, such as we see in both of those mergers. All right, let's move on. Uh, Shire is another name in your portfolio, uh, yes. another healthcare name. Takeda has a bit out there. It's 47 British pounds right now, made up of cash and stock. Mm -hmm. Uh, are you supportive of that? Is that a price at which you would pay? Would you be willing to take as much or more of 50% of the consideration in the stock of a Japanese pharmaceutical company? Sure. So taking a step back, we own Shire not as an arbitrage position, but like many of these situations, we own the companies because we believe that they're good or great businesses that we're trading at good or great right, prices. Shire is now in the midst of, Shire, of trying to make a decision. Right. And, a, and of, ultimately, under UK takeover laws, you know shareholders will have a say, right. potentially. And so in the case of Shire, right, we believe they brought it upon themselves that they are in this position. The stock was trading at below 130 per share, right? They're going to earn about $15. I'm talking in the U.S. because that's the way I think in the U.S. And so anytime a major company that thinks they have a good and growing franchise is trading at eight or nine times earnings, the companies either need to help themselves or they will either attract shareholder activists or in the case of Takeda, a slightly smaller fish bigger fish transaction where that corporate is going to effectively be the activist. The, the Takeda transaction offers three levels, lev, levers of value creation. Number one, they're going to take leverage up to about 4.3 times. We live in an environment where there's cheap debt and, and, and equity is a high cost of capital, and therefore they will create value that way. They'll delever over time. The second way is there's about a billion dollars of year three synergies that's worth about 10 billion to the combined company shared between the two shareholders. And the third thing which we think is important is people People were concerned about Shire's two headwinds, one in hematology and one in uh, neuroscience. And all pharma companies have some uh, 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 compounds that go off patent and lose exclusivity or are subject to competitive obsolescence. At the same point in time, they have their pipelines. If we put these two portfolios together, the impact of those uh, cliffs will be significantly dilutive. And that, combined with the fact that Japanese pharmaceutical companies generally trade at higher multiples, uh, will, I believe, create a back-end equity that actually is quite attractive. So we would encourage Shire's board to go through a full and fair process to compare all alternatives, including things that they can do with themselves. But we are not scared of the concept of there being a transaction which, as proposed in the fourth proposal, would be 45% cash and 55% Takeda equity. In the work that we've done in the last several weeks to date, Takeda equity at 12 times year one earnings, uh, look, the deal is 35% accretive to them, looks quite attractive as a longer-term investment. Yeah, nobody questions but, the accretion there. Some, yeah. though, wonder as to whether the composition, the leverage, the flowback issues, of course, of issuing all that equity would be something that would would, would not attract the interest of a number of for, shareholders. For, uh, for the traders, there's no question that some people won't want to own a Japanese equity or that there will be uh, uh, differences in index composition. For anybody with a two- to three-year time horizon, we think that there's substantial value creation to be had there. But uh, uh, whether that's the superior offer or whether there's other opportunities, uh, we in the market await that. All right. Uh, let's talk about another deal, uh, CBS Viacom. I know sure. that you, at least along with many other shareholders, have expressed concerns about what CBS might pay. It's a controlled company. I don't need yeah. to tell you that. Do you still have concerns about the economic value that might uh, be 
taken away to a certain extent from CBS as a result of whatever it decides if in fact it even gets a deal with Viacom. Sure. Well, because it's a controlled situation, we all recognize that there's this false choice, that both CBS and Viacom need to gain scale in order to gain market presence, and yet uh, it's being sold to investors that the only way to get scale is for those two to merge with each other. We think it's a false choice. So our first preference would be that there would be uh, a, an option to look at other opportunities for, for consolidation horizontal it's vertical. It's not going to happen. You know but, that. Well, it, uh, it's we, not going to happen. If we look at the economics that are available to both the controlling shareholders as well as the public shareholders, it may eventually happen. The question is whether you merge them both together and then, and then, you and then do it That's or whether true. you do it now. Right. But again, we are in that zone where you might even think about just doing it directly. So why do you own the stock? Uh, we own the stock because the underlying cash flows are cheap and we think CBS is a reasonably scarce asset. At the end of the day, it's about the quality of the content of their programming. Viacom's a very different story where they had historically uh, successful brands, which have great brand recognition, but their programming was, was lacking over the intermediate term and they're in the midst of a turnaround with a very valuable asset in the Paramount Studios that's probably worth a lot more than its current EBITDA. Uh, with the case of CBS, uh, both Showtime and CBS programming has been wonderful, largely fueled by the human capital that runs CBS. All right, so and would so, you, so if Leslie Mumbez would fired, was fired, would you sell the stock? Uh, look, it, it all depends on price and events and what else happened, et cetera. Uh, I think we would look at it and say, uh, I think it's in the controlling shareholders' best interest to, to, to combine the companies if that's what they want, but to combine them with the best human capital, because at the end of the day, there's a sacred covenant between controlling shareholders and the public markets that, that, that scratch each other's back. If we look at everything John Malone's done over time, he's at times been a controlling or quasi-controlling shareholder, but the reason he's been so successful over time and continues to get those opportunities is because he's partnered with the public markets rather than been an adversary of them. And I still think there's an opportunity for national amusements to partner with the public markets going forward, and we certainly hope that's what the path they choose. Uh, and Larry, finally, we might have spent a lot more time on Newell had they not reached a settlement, but they did. <laughs> My sense is, as a large shareholder, you may have also been involved in speaking to a number of the parties there. Sure. Jeff Smith, Carl Icahn, big egos, but they got it done. Why do you own the stock now, though, and do you believe they will be effective under the leadership of Mr. Polk? Sure. So, uh, first, we own the stock because we believe that uh, some of the headwinds that they were facing were transitory. For example, higher resin costs because of the hurricanes. That affects everybody. Certainly, we don't blame Mr. Polk for two hurricanes that spiked resin costs and takes a little while for those uh, price normalizations to happen through the market. Uh, we don't blame him for the Toys R Us's bankruptcy. We saw and noted with interest that Hasbro traded up on difficult numbers today because it's well documented that Toys R Us is in a bankruptcy and liquidation. And if they liquidate, they're not going to go Chapter 33. They've only gone Chapter 22. So some things are beyond their control. There are significant operating issues that we think that Starboard has done a great job of documenting and raising and we think that the people in the best position to evaluate that including the performance of the CEO is the new board and we think the new board it does consist of three icon appointees three starboard appointees, all of which are both economically and then reputationally very well motivated to get to the right answers. Uh, uh, we've seen promises of $6 billion or $10 billion of asset sales on a net basis. We would certainly encourage the company and the board to evaluate all asset sales, but don't be wedded to a fixed number. If it makes sense to do it as accretive and it reduces the span of control that, 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 that new management needs to focus on, that the new board needs to focus on along with management, well then that's value creative. But let's not just give away businesses because we made some some false promise. And we think with the settlement that's happened, there can be a fresh look with fresh eyes at what we do believe is a logical turnaround, taking margins from 15 to 18% over time. And we do believe these asset sales will give the company flexibility to not only pay down debt, but retire equity at what uh, nine times earnings were.
where it's trading at right now. So in, in this market where everybody keeps telling us the market's so expensive and everything's picked over, we've now talked about five or six or seven stocks that all seem to be trading at around 10 times earnings. So Glenview, I think we're stuck in the wayback machine. We can't <laughs> wait to hit the fast forward button and find these modern multiples in our portfolio. Perfect way to end there on the overall multiple. We did. I checked them all off, Larry. Thank you. You uh, talk Larry faster Robbins. than I do. Yeah. Well, <laughs> nobody talks faster than you. Larry Robbins, uh, or thinks faster than him as well. Back to you, Melissa. All right. Great Thank stuff, you. David. Thank you, David Faber and Larry Robbins of Glenview. Uh, let's trade this. We've got PBMs. We've got media. We've got Pharma. Take your pick. Uh, I'll, I'll hit some media. I mean, first of all, you know, it's, it's be interesting to hear if Larry thinks that CBS is still cheap a couple years later, you know, when the whole multiple of the industry has gone down. But the bottom line is, you know, the fear around CBS was that one less moon base was going to leave. And I think you've alleviated some of that. And also, were they going to overpay for Viacom on an undervalued stock price? Mm -hmm. um, and I think the, the take under at least numbers we have so far tell you that they won't. I think CBS is worth owning here, but I actually own Viacom. So I'd kind of like to see this deal go through. All right. Still ahead. We are all over the alphabet earnings call. Gene Munster standing by in the red phone as the stock is volatile after hours. We'll bring you the latest comments right after this break. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money and CNBC First in Business Worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. Perhaps, but supposedly safe soup and cereal stocks have been anything but, and it could signal a major shift for the market. Plus, while Bitcoin surges, another cryptocurrency is literally going to the moon. Yep, Bitcoin Cash. And there's a key event that could send it even higher. We'll tell you what that is when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Rates are surging as the U.S. 10-year yield hits its highest level since January 2014 today. And that's causing more pain for one group of so-called safety stocks. Bob Pisani is at the New York Stock Exchange with the details. Hi, Bob. Hello, Melissa. Happy Monday. Higher rates are a problem for stocks, but it's a particular problem for consumer staples companies because commodity inflation, which is indirectly tied up with interest rate inflation, is causing a real problem for this group overall. And this group has got a lot of problems. So today, Kimberly Clark reported earnings, and they noted that profit margins were impacted by what they called significant commodity inflation. Last week, Procter & Gamble said essentially the same thing, noting that higher commodity costs reduced earnings per share growth by about five percentage points. That's a lot. Now, commodity inflation is only one of the problems the consumer staples companies are facing. The value of their brand names are declining as consumers opt for generic brands and Amazon muscles into their territory. Also, they have very little ability to raise rates, even with inflation. And as a result, the margins are getting increasingly thin. Now, these issues have been building for several years, but it's all come to a head in 2018 when they've gone into free fall with big names like Kimberly Clark, Procter & Gamble, Clorox, General Mills, and Kraft Heinz down anywhere from 20 to 25 percent. Hey, by the way, if you're wondering what kind of commodity inflation worries Kimberly Clark, oil is one since it's used to make the big plastic wrapping, and they have a lot of wrapping. But Kimberly Clark is also one of the world's biggest users of eucalyptus pulp. That's right, eucalyptus pulp, which is used extensively to make, guess what, toilet paper and paper towels. Kimberly Clark owns Scott Paper and Kleenex. And eucalyptus pulp producers have been announcing big price hikes recently. Who knew? Back to you, Melissa. Now we do. Wow. Bob, thank you. Bob Pisani. Well, our next guest says there's a seismic shift going on in the Staples. Chartmaster Carter worth the corner, so Nacro's over at the plasma. Hi, Carter. Hi there. Well, they've been bad for a while and getting worse and so forth. 
Let's look at some uh, charts and some data and try to figure it out together. One thing we know, uh, last week was epic. In fact, let me just uh, point to these stats. How epic? Only two other times in the history of the data going back to the 1980s do you have a circumstance where staples as a sector down more than 4% in an up week for the market. So here are those other times. And what's curious is they were all in April. This happened in April of 93. It happened in April of 99. And it just happened last week. Again, where the sector's down more than 4% in an up week for the market. And what happens for the year the other two times was that staples ended up down. We're down now for the year. And I think the, the point I would just make from the beginning is bad things come from bad places. They were already down a lot. They got worse. And there's no indication that, that really the weakness has run its course. So the entire past 10 years, 2009 to 2018, staples have only outperformed in three of 10 years. And of course, in terms of results, they have done this versus the market, which has done that. So that not only tells you that they've been very reliably inconsistent in terms of giving results, their results are no good relative to the market. All right, let's look at the chart of that. This is back to the absolute low in 09 and the prior high. Here are the lines. And for the first time since the entire bull market, we have broken trend. Not a good circumstance. How about relative performance? Here's the worst part. Here's that same long-term trend which we just broke and for the entire bull market, of course, no relative performance, underperforming all the way. So they, they didn't help you on the way up, and now they're starting to hurt more than the market on the way down. The group, 34 stocks, 2 trillion. It's only 7.2% of the market at this point. Here is its historical weighting. Typically, it's around 11%. We're down to 7.2. The lowest it's ever been is 6. I think we're going to go sub-7. So again, I want to stay underweight or, or short this. Here's the final chart again. Once you break trend, more often than not, it's the beginning of trouble. I still want to be underweight staples, selling staples. Are there good ones? Sure, you could find a Costco or a Brown Foreman, but the in aggregate, not a good place to be. All right, thank you, Carter. You know, we're out of time today. What? So we cannot invite you over to the desk, but you are in the Pantheon still, so oh, please don't let that, the, yes. I mean, you know, he's, he's the pinnacle, the whatever guy wants to call it, yeah. Apex. Thank you, Carter. Zenith. Good to see you. Apex Tech. Okay, so basically we're getting competition from higher bond yields, plus the technical case, according to Carter, looks awful. Looks awful. Procter & Procter & Gamble is fascinating to me. Obviously, over the summer, last summer, Nelson Peltz announced a stake in the company. We talked about it. We talked about valuation being ridiculous at the time. Stock topped out around 93 bucks. You see where it is today, 52-week low. Quickly, though, look at Procter & Gamble. I encourage you folks at home to go play this game. 98, stock was trading $55, $60. By mid-99, traded $25. Look what happened to the broader market then. 06, 07, the stock was a $75 stock. Within six and a half, seven months, stock was trading 50. Then look what happened to the broader market. And I just brought up the fact that Procter & Gamble was $93 last summer, 70 now. Does that mean, and this is we'll have to sort of leave it out there hanging, does the broader market follow in kind? Oh. Are you going to oh, give us I'm an answer? Or you're just leaving us hanging, hanging Mel. Wow. wow. Leaving us hanging. Something to think on as we head to break. Guy. Thanks, Guy. Still ahead, Alphabet volatile in the after-hour session. The C-Suites addressing privacy concerns on the company conference call. Um, we'll bring you those comments. Plus, it is a crypto civil war. Bitcoin versus Bitcoin Cash, both soaring to their highest levels in weeks. 
But in the race to the top, hedge fund manager John Pfeffer says there is one clear winner. You will not believe how high he sees it going. Find out when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got breaking news coming out of the Ira Sohn conference. Leslie Picker has the details. Uh, Einhorn's trade, Leslie, what is it? Hey, hey, Melissa, that's right. The last investor presentation of today, David Einhorn calling for investors to short assured guarantee ticker AGO. That company, of course, a bond insurer, which he says the auditors and regulators have missed uh, some of their uh, malfeasance. Uh, he says that it's like a mel melting ice cube paying out the drops while it still can. As you can see there, the stock uh, down more than a half, one and a half percent in after hours trading. Back over to you. All right. Thank you very much, uh, Leslie Picker. Um, as our producer, Max Myers, reminds us, Ackman shorted MBIA. That idea was also unveiled at the Sone conference many years ago. Uh, so well, this, this is interesting. It is interesting. I mean, one of David's greatest picks was, I think it was Allied Capital years and years ago. He wrote that book on it, fooling all, all the people, or some of the people all the time, something like that. These very tricky ones. Uh, uh, I don't know what to make of it. He's a really smart guy. I know the performance hasn't been great, but I would not bet against him. Stock short had a pretty significant move. Lower, $30. I mean, this was a $45 stock, I think, in the summer. It's 30 and a five and a half now. It feels as though there's further room to $30. I don't think Mr. Einhorn is looking for a move to $30. He's clearly looking for something bigger than that. Very tough to play, you know, the short game, as many of the folks at home know, but it's something to watch for sure. I think it trades down to 30 All right. Another hot topic at the Sone conference today was Bitcoin. For more on that, let's bring in Bitcoin bull John Pfeffer of Pfeffer Capital. John, great to have you on the program. Great to be here. Um, I want to go right to what you were predicting um, at the conference, and that is that Bitcoin will rise to no less than 90,000 and potentially as high as 700,000. What sort of time frame are you looking for, and can you sort of lay out the case for, for the bear case, I guess, if you want to call it that, for 90,000, and the bull case, <laughs> which is 700 grand? Well, Sure. The bear case is zero. But um, okay. <laughs> uh, listen, these are these are all I think people should think about crypto assets, Bitcoin as 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 a venture capital investment. They could go to zero, um, but there's a chance that they could be worth much more. In the case of Bitcoin, the ninety thousand dollar price would be what it would be worth if Bitcoin became equal to uh, private gold bullion holdings, about one point six trillion dollars of of total value compared to one hundred fifty billion or thereabouts today. Um, and, um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a bet. It's a risk that, that I think is interesting and, and, and I'd be willing to take. On the higher end, you could get to higher values if Bitcoin becomes a major reserve currency, i.e., you know, countries begin to take Bitcoin into their reserves. Uh, and in that case, it could reach several hundred thousand dollars. I think the probability of that is lower, but it's certainly a possibility. And, and that's what you do when you make a venture capital investment. You're betting on, on, on potential outcomes. You're basically saying that Bitcoin would have to replace a certain percentage. I, I, I believe you said 25 percent of foreign reserves. What is the equivalent in terms of what kind of what currency out there that exists that's 25 percent of foreign reserves? Just to give us an idea well, of how big this okay, would have so, to be. Yeah. So about so foreign reserves are 12.7 trillion dollars in total. 11 percent of that is gold and about 60 percent of the rest. So, you know, is is the dollar. And then you've got a few other currencies, the pound, the yen the Swiss franc, et cetera, that, and the euro, of course, um, that make up the remainder. When you take a look out at what Bitcoin would replace, I mean, are you thinking mostly emerging market currencies, um, places where there's severe devaluation first, and then you get sort of a small percentage of 
you know, the dollar, the euro, the, I mean, yeah. the, the thing with the developed countries, obviously, is that there is such infrastructure that there is great competition, right, to be used as a well, currency. There's no reason for somebody in the U.S., for instance, to say, I'm going to transact only in Bitcoin, at least right now. I completely agree. I mean, I don't think this is about paying for coffee, and yeah. at least that's not, I think, that's certainly not my thesis. So I completely agree. And in developed countries like the U.S., there's no, there's no, there's no screaming need. And in, in, in developing countries, or certainly countries with collapsed currencies, it is more important and could be more for daily use. When I think about the displacement argument, I start with gold, because I think that gold, frankly, is kind of silly. I mean, we're a, we're a space-faring digital society, and we're still using a yellow metal as our non-sovereign store of value. At some point, we're going to come up with a better technology for that, and Bitcoin is the first candidate to do that. We'll see if it works. Um, and I start there. Beyond that, I think there are some advantages to having a non-fiat-based reserve currency for many countries that would see uh, the other countries that, you know, as strategic rivals. Um, we'll see if that happens. It is a long-term view. I mean, I'm not really interested. Well, I don't, I don't know how to predict short-term prices in this, in, this, in, in this area. I'm thinking about what could these things be worth when they cease to be pure objects of speculation but are actually being used in the real economy. And that's years from now. Right. And so 90,000 90, would be 10 years? 20 years? Uh, well, How long term are we talking about? Well, that could be sooner. I mean, it okay. could, again, let me be clear. So could zero. But, I mean, if it goes to $90,000 is, in my view, a relatively, quote, low bar. That's only about, I mean, only 10 times the current price. Um, right now, um, it's mostly retail investors, not much institutional investors. I could see private sector institutional investors um, helping it get to that price. Right. You know, in the next couple of years. I don't know. But, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not, to be honest, I don't want to make time point estimates because it's, it's a venture capital bet, and venture capital is a long-term thing. But, yeah, I mean, I think that could be sooner. The higher number of some kind of foreign reserve displacement, mm -hmm. that's clearly a much longer-term thing. All right. John, thanks for your time. appreciate it. Hope you'll come back to Fast Money soon. John thanks. Pfeffer. Nice um, let, let's try this, BK. What do you think? Well, I really like the way that John looks at this because it is a venture capital investment. So you put 1% to 5% of your assets in here. If, it, if you're right about it and it goes to 90000 that means you make 1,000%. If you're wrong about it, you lose 5%. That's a bet I'll take all day long. All right. So ahead, check out shares of Alphabet. Uh, volatile in the after-hour session. It's despite a big earnings beat. The C-suite addressing privacy concerns on the call. We'll bring you those comments. More Fast Money still ahead. It is one of the cheapest stocks around. It is growing at incredibly fast rates. And I tend to think, when I think about these businesses, can they 10x in 10 years? And I think this is possible to do that as well. So you think it could grow from a $3 billion to a $30 billion company? Over 10 years, I think it could. Wow. Uh, that was Shamath Palihapitiya of, of Social Capital on Closing Bell earlier today discussing his bullish bet on Box, the stock having its best day since its IPO, after Palihapitiya said investors should be long Box at the conference. And options traders are already following his advice. Mike Coe is breaking it down from Austin. Mike. Hi there. Yeah, so as soon as that news came out in the middle of the day, we saw about 18 times the average daily call volume grew to 25 times the average daily call volume by the end of the day in the most active options were the May 23 calls. We saw over 6,000 of those by the end of the day, trading about $1.15. So those are bullish bets being made by options traders that this stock could rise above 24.15 by May expiration. It's about four weeks away from now. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. Mike Coe in Austin for us. For more options action, check out the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up next, much more fast and more on Alphabet's conference call. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Alphabet in the after-hour session. The conference call is wrapping up moments ago. Let's get to Gene Munster for the details. Gene, um, what was the most important thing on the call? 
The privacy topic finally came up. They addressed the elephant in the room, Melissa, and uh, Sundar, the CEO, had a great response, which is that their search business, which is almost 90% of their business, really doesn't use personal data. It uses your keywords. And so that's going to be a relatively insulated. That's important for investors to know. That's the key takeaway. I'm going to make another quick bet here. Ten years from now, the third biggest business of Google is going to be their self-driving car ahead of cloud. Interesting. And quickly, Gene, grade the earnings report. It's right down the middle. This is a B. They did enough to uh, maintain the stock and still uh, have their pole position in the future. And what do you recommend, investor? Would, here's a would you rather. Oh, I like this. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Like 20 seconds. Get a dollar today in Google, knowing the earnings report, or a dollar right now in Facebook, not knowing what they're going to report? Ooh. I'll take $3 in Google. $3 wow. in Google. All right, that's fascinating. Gene, thanks. Gene Munster of Loop Ventures. How do we trade Google, you think? Uh, Well, for me, I'll see what happens 9.30 tomorrow morning, but I think if we're up, you buy that momentum. All right, time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. If we had time, we would talk to energy today. OIH outperforming S&P, stay there. Karen Feinerman. Yeah, I'm with Gene. Got my money in Alphabet. Brian Kelly. Well, Well, we talked a lot about energy inflation. We talked a lot about inflation in the staples. How do you hedge your portfolio against that? You buy silver, SLV. Did you ever get a B in school? Be honest. You know the answer. <laughs> Don't play the game. Like you in know gym or never, never a B, no. ever. In college. And what yeah. class? In organic chemistry. Really? I mean, dope. That's why I'm not a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Amongst many reasons. Newell Rubbermaid, Mel, we talked about this. He makes a very compelling case on valuation. The stock has dropped, in my opinion. NWL gets you done. All right. I'm Melissa Lee. Thanks so much for watching. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Money. Meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.